Welcome to Intergenerational Politics, a podcast that makes politics engaging and relevant for all generations. This is Victor Shi, a freshman at UCLA and the youngest elected delegate for Joe Biden. And I'm Jill Wine-Banks. I'm an MSNBC legal analyst and the author of The Watergate Girl. I'm also the wearer of Jill's pins. And in honor of our guest today, I'm wearing a very special pin. It's an eagle holding a shield that says, Defend America. And you can see it on my Twitter account, my my, uh, website, and hopefully in our show notes. So today, the United States is facing an unprecedented level of threats from both international and domestic sources. The Washington Post reported a disturbing analysis finding domestic terrorism incidents had soared to new heights in the United States and that right-wing white supremacist groups like Proud Boys and Oath Keepers are among the leading perpetrators of domestic terrorism. They were part of the insurrection on January 6th when a violent mob provoked by Trump stormed the Capitol building in an attempt to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. Just 100 days over, we want to dedicate this episode of Intergenerational Politics to talk about the current landscape of domestic extremism, the road ahead for alt-right white nationalist groups, and the role the Biden Department of Homeland Security and other agencies have in stopping these groups from continuing to harm our country. Uh, We are honored to have uh, with us former Secretary of Homeland Security under President Obama, Secretary Jay Johnson. Before becoming Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, Jay served as General Counsel of the Department of Defense. General Counsel of the Department of the Air Force, and as an Assistant United States Attorney for the Southern District of New York. Currently, Jay is a partner at the Paul Weiss Law Firm, so there is really no one to talk to today about these issues than Jay. So thanks so much for being here. Thank you. I look forward to our discussion. Victor and Jill, thank you for having me on. Thank you. And by the way, I too was a delegate to a convention. Oh. Uh, oh which one? In 2008? 2008. And wow. uh, when I was about Victor's age, I also volunteered for my first presidential campaign, Carter Mondale, 1976. While wow. I was- <laughs> that was my first campaign, too. I worked for Sergeant Shriver at the time. And, um, I, I, you know, I'm sad, of course, about the recent passing of uh, Senator, Vice President, Ambassador Mondale, who became a friend. We did a program at the University of Minnesota Law School about Watergate from his perspective from the Senate side and mine from the prosecution side. So that that was a great loss. Um, and well, recently- I don't know if you can see it, your viewers, listeners, but behind me is my bumper sticker collection. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. Bipartisan, and it goes back to Herbert Hoover, you can see there on the top, and it has, it has Carter Mondale, but what's very unique about that mounted bumper sticker collection is I have, Jill, you will appreciate this. I have both a McGovern Eagleton bumper sticker and a McGovern Schreiber bumper sticker on the same. Oh my (laughs) God. That's fantastic. It's like the most political junkie thing that someone can do. (laughs) Would you take a picture of that and send it to us so that we can post that? Because it's fabulous. And I have a picture of 10 out of 10 solely for the bumper sticker collection. That's fantastic. (laughs) Absolutely. I have a picture that just got published in the Chicago Sun-Times of me wearing a Carter Mondale button. Um, it was during the campaign, and uh, it was next to a picture of Katie Holmes, who's going to play me in the movie based on my 
memoir. And I don't know why they picked that particular picture, but I sent it to um, Fritz just a month ago. So I'm, that was the last time we were in communication. But I just thought it was sort of cute and funny. But you know, while we're diverting from the serious stuff, before we went live here, you mentioned to us what you were doing just before getting on our podcast. And I would love you to share that because it's something I didn't know about. Oh, first we're answering the phone. <laughs> Go ahead. So could you tell us about your radio gig, your radio oh, show? Yes. So uh, I work in New York City and I live in Montclair, New Jersey, which is just outside of New York City. And I love classic R&B music. And we have a radio station here in the area WBGO 88.3 FM. It's about as far left, and I'm yeah. dating myself, you know, <laughs> dial as you can go, 88.3. And during the week, it's jazz. And on weekends, specifically Saturday, it is classic R&B. And I love the radio station. I love it on Saturday, wherever I am, whether I was in Washington, whether I'm home here, any other part of the world, I always listen to that station. And it's public radio. And if you pledge enough money to public radio, they let you do anything, including taking over the radio station. So they have this program called Host an Hour, where, where members and supporters can go on for an hour, bring their own playlist, play what they want, narrate. And I started doing that in 2002. And it has got to the point where I am um, on the board of directors and I go on routinely once or twice a year. And I have to tell you, um, spinning your own records, your own playlist on a radio station is more fun than any podcast, any meet the press <laughs> appearance, any definitely any congressional testimony or, or anything else. Wow. So what's your favorite uh, classic R&B song? Favorite is, there's no one favorite. Uh, <laughs> Uh, Otis Redding, Sam Cooke, The Four oh. Tops, Aretha, Dionne Warwick. I mean, I could go on. It, there, oh. there are dozens. There are literally dozens. I have a favorites playlist that is over 100 selections itself. Wow. wow. So there's no there's no one particular artist. As I as I as I do this interview in today's New York Times, there is the obituary of someone named Bob oh. Porter, who I most often went on with. Um, he was a real classic R&B jazz aficionado. He mm. was he was a great man, and and he he died just recently. His obituary is in the New York Times today. Mm. Well, all the artists that you named are wonderful. They're some of my favorites, and um, I just watched the Aretha uh, docudrama. Of, I I don't know exactly what it was, which was wonderful. And uh, we've actually been contacted by Mary Blige, who plays uh, Dinah Washington in that, um, about coming on our podcast. So that may be coming. Maybe you'll be interested in, in that particular podcast as well. But, so well, uh, now, now that you've said that, I'm going to show you something, uh, which you can see here. Oh, wow. Mm. Uh, that oh, is an God. embassy party in Washington, oh. the French embassy, November 2015. And... Uh, my wife and I showed up and there are Supreme Court justices, diplomats and so forth. And at some point before we sat down, I asked the maitre d', uh, where am I seated? 
because you want to know which <laughs> justice am I sitting next to? And he said, well, we've seated you next to Miss Franklin. We hope you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> mind. Uh, but I was like a school kid, you know, with, <laughs> seeking an autograph. It was pretty yeah. cool. So there's a rumor that Aretha Franklin, I lived near the French um, embassy when I lived in Washington. In I was in Adams Morgan on the other side of Connecticut Avenue. Um, but that she also lived on Connecticut Avenue near Ashmead. Do you, can you confirm that? Is that true? Was she I, my neighbor? I have no idea. Sorry. I'm going to have to do some research on I that. I was in national security, but I don't know everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, we hope you know enough to answer our questions, which we are quite confident that you do. So let's go back to the serious stuff about January 6th. And, you know, since that time, uh, the CIA director, Avril Haines, has identified domestic terrorism and many others, not just him, as the biggest threat facing America today. Haynes called domestic terrorism the most, most lethal threat to America and said it has transnational connections. So let's start with your view of what domestic terrorism is and why it is such a threat and if you agree that it is the most serious threat. Well, there are several strands to it. I have, since I became a part of national security, watched the terrorist threat to our homeland evolve significantly. When I started with the Obama administration in 2009, as the senior lawyer for the Department of Defense, we were still very much in the thick of conflict in our counterterrorism efforts against Al-Qaeda. Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, core Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda in the Horn of Africa. And so a lot of what I did as the senior legal official for DOD was to sign off on our counterterrorism operations, which in my judgment made our homeland significantly safer from an extraterritorial counter, uh, extraterritorial terrorist threat. We have degraded Al-Qaeda significantly. We have degraded the Islamic State, ISIS, significantly, such that it would be very difficult for them to launch an attack, a large-scale attack, on our homeland again. We evolved from the foreign-directed attack, like the one I just described, to what we refer to as foreign-inspired attacks, where the terrorist actor is in the homeland is based here, but is inspired by something overseas on the internet and so forth. And we saw a lot of that, you'll remember, in the period 2014, 2015, 2016. Now, we are faced with a further evolution to domestic-based, domestic-inspired acts of terrorism. Uh, the, 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 largest scale example of that was Timothy McVeigh, 2015. Uh, but we now see sporadic attacks. Um, January 6th is a bit of a, a unique circumstance. In many respects, January 6th um, was like, analogies are often poor, but in many respects, it resembled what happened in Benghazi in 2012. It was a, 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 a collection of different strands of people, groups, 
that had converged on one place to do violence. And a lot of people refer to it as a terrorist attack. Technically, legally, it, it, it meets the definition of terrorism, but I believe it is the very essence of the definition of an insurrection. It was an insurrection, and I think we should call it as such. But Avril is correct that the principal terrorist threat to our homeland is now domestic-based, and therefore it is incumbent upon our government to shift its emphasis. I used to tell people at Homeland Security, don't respond to the last attack, let's be prepared to respond to the next attack. And our government is often very slow to respond to and see emerging threats. So the, the hearing the other day of the leaders of our intelligence community, Avril Haines, who's the DNI included, I thought presented a clear-eyed picture of the threats that we face, including not just terrorism, but climate change and a series of other things. So when we think of the domestic side of it, um, do you have some specific groups that you think have formed to pose a great threat to us? Well, there's a very interesting study that was authored by a professor at the University of Chicago, Jill, right there where you are, Robert Pape, who actually studied the demographics of those who converged on the Capitol January 6th. Yeah. They are better educated than you would expect. And many of them come from blue states and many of them come from diverse communities. And what Professor Pape concludes is there, there were two principal motivations for what happened on January 6th. A, stop the steal, you know, the big, the big lie that somehow our election was stolen from Donald Trump. And B, fear of the great replacement. You all know what I'm talking about, the fear of, frankly, the increasing diversification of our of our nation, which is an unfounded fear, obviously. And that seems to be the driver for a lot of the white nationalist violent extremists we see, whether it's January 6th, whether it was Charlottesville, and a whole lot of other things in between. And of course, Charlottesville, they were chanting, the Jews will not replace us. That's a direct uh, of course, it refers back to the Nazis before World War II and during World War II, but it's clearly a direct expression of the replacement theory. Um, and, and so we'll talk about that. But first, I want to just go back to Haynes, who, when he used the word transnational connections, um, it was a phrase I hadn't been familiar with. And uh, so I, I'm not sure that all of our listeners and watchers have... Um, done that. So could you maybe tell what you think um, uh, Haynes uh, meant when when she said um, transnational connections? Could, could mean a couple of things. Transnational could mean international. Okay. Um, groups and organizations that exist in multiple jurisdictions. It could also mean a group, an organization, that is domestic, but is inspired, encouraged, 
by foreign influences uh, that seek to uh, stoke division in our in our country. Um, and so I, I think that we have to be mindful of, of, of all of those threats. And and you think that, you know, when we look at groups like um, the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys, um, is there any sort of uh, interaction between them that makes each of them a greater threat? And um, well, there's obviously they, strength in numbers and strength in organization. Yeah. Um, these different groups have slightly variant objectives, but it all tracks back to uh, white nationalist extremism. Yeah, it was. That's one of the things I've tried to discern is what are just in terms of tactics, but also in terms of goals. How different are they when ultimately they're all, um, to me, anti-democratic and um, definitely white supremacist in in a lot of what they're saying, or anti-Semitic as well. Um, so it, it, am I correct in that, that they do have different goals? And is there anything specific about their goals or tactics that's worth noting? They, they have slightly different goals, but it's all a variant on the same theme. And, you know, if you were to find the charter of each one of these groups, I'm sure that the original motivating principle uh, is somewhat different. You know, for example, there are groups that simply hate and refuse to recognize the federal government and exist for that reason. They don't want to pay taxes. They don't want to acknowledge the jurisdiction of the federal government. And then there are groups that are just out and out racist. There are groups that are out and out anti-Semitic that deny the Holocaust. There are groups that deny 9-11. Uh, there are groups that are all of the above. Um, so it's like it's a menu of of intolerance, evil, bigotry, and white nationalism. Is is Donald Trump a um, causative factor in the growth of these groups? I mean, I, I'm sure they existed before him, but he certainly unleashed them and made them legitimate. Uh, and, and I use that word advisedly, but in his mind, uh, he empowered them. Let's call it that. Here's how I would say it. You're right. Um, these groups did not arise after 2016. Uh, they existed before 2016. But what President Trump did was to embolden them to basically peel the lid off, off these groups, encourage them to crawl out from their rock, tell them it's okay to exhibit your hatred and your, your racist attitudes in the open in Charlottesville and elsewhere. And so it was a boiling pot and he kind of lit the match. And is there, and, and he also tries to do January 6th. Yeah. Even but Mitch he, McConnell said he was morally and practically responsible for what happened on January 6th. And Mitch McConnell also said, and he hasn't gotten away with it yet. There is a criminal and civil litigation process that could hold him accountable, which we all hope for. But um, Trump. By the way, I believe so. I believe one of the reasons we haven't heard that much from Donald Trump since January 20 
is he spends probably all of his time with lawyers with all of the different lawsuits that he's defending right now. Good, good. Um, so he also has tried to divert from the, the role of these groups by saying, as has McConnell and others, it's Antifa. That's who it is. It's the left. It's really not us. Um, do you think there is any comparable threat from groups that represent more left-leaning uh, viewpoints? No, they're not comparable at all. Um, and any suggestion that Antifa was somehow behind January 6th is a big lie. And one of the problems we face in our democracy, I'm, I'm writing a speech on this right now, is given social media, you can believe what you want to believe. There are so many different sources of news and information, quote unquote, on the internet that do nothing more than reaffirm your own biases and conspiracy theories and suspicions that you want some validation that Antifa was behind January 6th, you could go on, you could go on the internet and find it. Um, it'll be a kook who's saying it, or maybe even a United States Senator who's saying it, but you can find validation of it someplace. Jill, you and I, when we grew up, we had five basic sources of news, four or five. Mm -hmm. uh, your local newspaper, your local radio station, and Walter Cronkite. And in fact, if something happened in the course of a day, I didn't believe it happened until I heard Walter Cronkite tell me it happened on the CBS Evening News. Yeah. Now, and, and all of these sources had standards. Now, anybody with a keyboard and access to the internet can claim to be a source of news and information and spread all kinds of ridiculous, baseless conspiracy theories, which is why we are confronted with questions like, which shouldn't even be given a moment's thought about whether or not Antifa had something to do with January 6th. No, that's ridiculous. I, I can't agree with you more on that. Um, I think that the change in the media landscape, in, in the old days, we also had Brinkley, uh, Huntley Brinkley and there were basically a limited number of sources and they all had the same facts. We did not debate the facts. We could argue about the policy implications, but we didn't debate whether truth was truth. As and that is- You're entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. Right, right. Exactly, exactly. I used to work for him when I was Victor's age ah, for the summer. What a Amazing. great person to work for. Yeah, yeah. And you know, we want to get into that more because it's such a it's such a concerning aspect of, of our society now. And we just talked to um, Clarissa Ward, who is a CNN um, war correspondent on Monday. And what she said was particularly enlightening about that, which is basically like, you have so much misinformation and disinformation being thrown at you. And the goal of that isn't to persuade you, but it, the goal of that is to get you to shut down. And once you shut down, you become really vulnerable to totalitarianism. And I thought that was really interesting. And I think just the amount of misinformation out there is really starting to get people to not believe in anything to the point that they, you know, they- It's seductive too. Right, right. It's, it's like- there, the there is a great- And buttered popcorn, it's seductive. Yes. There's a great yeah. speech by Sasha Baron Cohn in his own words as him, not as Borat, but as a serious person um, speaking to the Anti-Defamation League about social media and the dangers and damage it has done. 
And maybe, uh, Victor, we can post that as well because sure, sure. it's something that really um, gets into the the impact that this has had. Um, now, I'm not I, I'm not I'm not here to trash social media. There are many many virtues to being able to hold the entire world in your hand, um, and I am not at all suggesting government censorship of what appears on social media on the internet. We don't do that in this country. We have a First Amendment. Part of the problem is, I think it's part of the solution is it's incumbent upon Americans to be more scrutinizing yeah. when it comes to what they exactly. on the internet. And very often we read a headline or we read a paragraph or we read a news alert or a blurb and we, we think no further. We just accept what we're being told from the sources that we are drawn to right. without a lot of scrutiny or a lot of thought. And I think it's incumbent upon Americans to be informed Americans if you want to participate in this democracy, because so much of the crap that is out there, if you just simply scratch below the surface, you will know that it is crap. Well, speaking of crap, you know, we mentioned this uh, a little bit earlier. There, there, there's this growing claim from Republicans that immigration is leading to, you know, this replacement of the white population. And to me, this is this isn't only racist, but it seems to have been empowered by alt-right nationalist groups as well. And Jill mentioned the the kind of the chant at Charlottesville that echoed um, what Nazis chanted before World War II. And I'm wondering how your first your thoughts on this, but how dangerous is this being pushed by huge, uh, you know, media sources like Tucker Carlson, lawmakers and other right wing people and whether that increases the chances of domestic terrorism. Uh, I, I agree with the premise in your questions, in your question. Um, economic study after economic study shows that immigrants, whether you're talking about someone at the southern border from Central America or a scientist from Southwest Asia does not displace an American job. They add value. They add to our economy. Uh, they add jobs in many respects. I mean, study after study has shown that. Yet there's this notion that immigrants cost Americans jobs. Well, first of all, we are a nation of immigrants, uh, except for Native Americans and except for my slave ancestors who were brought here in the, in the 17th and 18th century, we're all immigrants. And, you know, as Ronald Reagan said, you can go to France, but never be a Frenchman. You can go to Germany and never be a German, but you can come to America and be an American. We're all, we're all Americans. And most of us are at one point or another in our lineage, immigrants and so this notion of displacement is, 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 is a false premise, uh, yet it, it is red meat. It, it plays well. And I, I remember a defining point in my time in public service was we were very close in 2013, 2014 to getting comprehensive immigration reform. And then right around the same time, the issue of immigration became a real overheated issue. Uh, anytime there's a surge on our southern border, conservative media plays that to the hill uh, because it stokes people's fears, their prejudices, 
their suspicions and it is it is motivating much of the 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 hatred we see right now you know that 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 is that is for sure and you know there's the other week um marjorie taylor green mac gates and other Republicans who voted against the certification of Joe Biden as president, they also announced that they're forming this new, quote, like American First Caucus. And they described what they're doing with this out of kind of common respect for uniquely Anglo-Saxon political traditions, which is widely understood to mean white supremacy. And the coalition stances are extreme alt-right you know, lies ranging from the big lie about election fraud and security to claims about mass migration posing an existential threat to America. And I'm wondering, you know, especially since you're writing a speech on this and since you've been involved in um, uh, national security, how do you convince someone who is on the extreme partisan sides, whether it's on the right or the left, to believe in facts again? Um, because to me, it, they just seem unreachable. But do you think there's any way to reach them and kind of get to get them to understand that what they're what this American First Caucus is, you know, it, it's just all based on lies and unfounded claims? Uh, there's a there's a story I heard, which I think is accurate, but it may not be as I'm going to tell it completely accurate. But I think the essential point is there. <clears throat> there was somebody who was a Trump supporter who was in the late stages of his life. And I think he knew he was gonna die. And he took himself off social media. And when he did that, he uncoupled himself from all of the hysteria and conspiracy theories and became more fact-based in his thinking hmm. and ended up voting for Joe Biden before he died or just before died just before the election, something like that. I, I heard this story someplace, but it, it makes a point which is that human beings, what there's a part of us that resides within us that is by nature suspicious, uh, a little paranoid and uncomfortable with those who are different from us. And the wrong influences can stoke that to the surface in various different forms, in various different ways, in various different periods of our history. And if we peel the lid off that and encourage it to the surface, some really ugly things can happen. And we went down this road in a very, very dangerous experiment with the election of Donald Trump, quite frankly. And we saw the consequences of this, our democracy almost the wheels of our democracy almost came off the bus on January 6th. Uh, we're seeing the consequences of that in a lot of other ways. But the movement that we are talking about in this podcast is now at the surface. It's not below the surface anymore. It's not under the rock anymore. It's out there in the open. We saw it. And so I believe it's incumbent upon Americans of goodwill to speak out about this. I think it's incumbent upon all of us to encourage our family, our friends, uh, our students, uh, any of us who have a public voice to encourage Americans to be more fact-based in 
how they formulate their opinions and their attitudes about things. I mean, they're of course dealing with violent extremism, the, the law enforcement avenues, law enforcement tools in the toolbox and so forth. Um, but there's a very basic problem with our democracy right now in that people are entitled to believe what they want to believe. A very, very, an alarmingly high percentage of Republicans believe that the election was stolen from Donald Trump. It's not because of any court ruling they read, because there is no such court ruling. It's not because of any, any state election official who refused to certify the election for that reason, because there is no such state election official. It's because of the hysteria and, and lies being told on the internet that people see and they assume, well, if it's there, it must be true. There must be something to it. It, it, you know, last night when Jill and I were preparing for this, we I, I told her about this one huge social media influencer. Her name is Candace Owens, and it was right after the Chauvin trial. And basically, she went on Tucker Carlson's Fox News and was saying that the decision was because of mob rule, that basically the media created this narrative, which then you know, influence the public and then the jury was influenced by mob rule. And that's just the type of thing that, you know, I look at and I see, you know, like, what would you say to like younger people who are on social media? And when they look at that, you know, a huge chunk of her 2.6 million followers obviously buy into that. So um, how how do you even go about going on social media and, and I guess verifying your sources, checking your biases, kind of going through all of what you just mentioned to make sure that, you know, people do actually believe in facts? Well, a cross-section of people from the Minneapolis area who don't know each other before they walked into the courtroom, who, we don't know this because we never saw the jury, who are probably a cross-section of the demographics in that area, which is very diverse, is not a mob. A group of 12 American citizens in a jury box in a controlled situation in a courtroom is not a mob. Let's be clear about that. That's ridiculous. Um, the good news to what I was talking about earlier is that our courts are still a forum for truth. You know, we TV shows and in American life, we always look to the courtroom as the place where truth finally emerges. You know, the last couple of minutes of law and order, you know, truth always emerges. Mm -hmm. um, inherit the wind, Jill, truth emerges, right? All these movies and TV shows, at the end of the court scene, truth always emerges. A few good men. Uh, and we, we looked to the courtroom as a place where truth and justice emerge. And I think that is still true with respect to our, 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 our court system in this country, state, state and federal. Sometimes justice can be a little sloppy. Sometimes there are a few bumps in the road, but in general, um, our judges and our juries get to the right result. And so while the political branches of our government have become very polarized and immobilized, I think one of the good news aspects of our democracy that is still the case is that our, our, our courtrooms are still places to go to get truth. So maybe now is a good time to look at the role of the Department of Homeland Security, the cabinet position that you held 
in the Obama administration. I'm very happy not to have it anymore. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think it's gotten harder now? Yes. So, yes. all right, well, let's start with, just so that our audience is fully informed, um, talking about what the role of DHS is, what tools it has to combat domestic terrorism, domestic extremism, um, and it's just its general role uh, in our government right now. Sure. The Department of Homeland Security is the third largest department of our government, cabinet level, after DOD and Veterans Affairs. Hmm. It was formed, as everybody knows, in the wake of 9-11 by an act of Congress in 2002. It's the cornerstone mission was counterterrorism after 9-11. The assumptions then were if you put into one cabinet level department, the regulation of all of the different ways someone can enter our country, land, sea, and air, you will have effectively dealt with terrorism because terrorism, and this goes back to what I was saying before, terrorism then was regarded as an extraterritorial threat. So you, you keep certain people out of our country, you keep terrorism out of our country. And so we put into one cabinet level department, the Border Patrol, Customs, TSA, the Coast Guard, Border Security, Port Security, Aviation Security, Maritime Security. And then the Cybersecurity Commission came along and we, put, we threw that in there too. That model is now outdated because the principal terrorist threat is a domestic threat. And there are not a whole lot of Homeland Security police running around in the interior looking for terrorists. DHS personnel reside principally at the borders, at the ports, at the airports, at the seaports. So when it comes to law enforcement in the interior, the DHS model is outdated and we have to look to the FBI and other law enforcement agencies to enforce the law to pursue criminal investigations in the interior. And that's not to suggest, therefore, that we should hire thousands of new DHS cops or Homeland Security investigations to, to look for terrorists in the interior. It suggests that the existing model in the Joe, the question you ask is hard because DHS itself is not equipped to, to go out and arrest a whole lot of domestic-based terrorists. And so as that threat was evolving, while I was in office, I spent a lot of time on what we refer to as our CVE mission, countering violent extremism, where I'd go out to various different communities across the country and meet with community groups organizations dedicated to eradicating extremism, bring them together with local law enforcement to encourage them to work with law enforcement before something violent can, can happen here in, in the homeland. But it's, a, it's, so I, it's an outdated model. And for the most part, we have to look to our FBI at the federal level to deal with domestic-based terrorism. Now, if I were, if I were king, or I could just decree a realignment of government, I would decree something that would never happen, which is you create a department of 
public safety, much like ministries of the interior that exist in other countries. And I put into that large department every single federal law enforcement agency. Leave the lawyers in the Department of Justice, civil and criminal, but put every federal law enforcement agency in one big Department of Public Safety, FBI, DEA, ATF, Border Patrol, Homeland Security Investigations, uh, and, and the federal marshals and any other law enforcement agency you can think of. I put them all in one place under one cabinet secretary. I deconflict all of their missions. I deconflict all of their cybersecurity missions. And I give them a very large intelligence collection directorate that shares intel with all these different agencies. So they're not competing. And go from there. That's a very efficient model. It's also a very, very big cabinet department, and it'll never happen. But, you know, in a perfect world, that's how you'd go about this, because you're then able to confront all different types of threats as they evolve. Yeah, it's it's so interesting how needed talking to each other is. Um, when I was general counsel of the Army, we had a problem working with our allies because Sometimes our communications devices didn't talk to each other. Sometimes our hoses, when a ship would come to port in Europe, it was on the metric system and our hoses didn't fit, so they couldn't use things. Jill, I have bad news for you. That's still a problem. Well, that is really a shame because we certainly worked at it. And, and the same is true, of course, with the FBI not talking to all the other agencies of law enforcement that you've mentioned. Um, I did and not so, know you were general counsel of the Army. Yeah, so I shared that with you, too, because you were general counsel of the Air Force, right? Right. Yeah, well, that was one of my best jobs ever. I loved, loved the that. The general counsel of the Air Force is also the civil administrator of Wake Island in the Pacific Ocean. Ah. So the general counsel of the Air Force, I bet you didn't get this with the Army, is a governor of an island in the Pacific Ocean. I thought that was pretty cool. I, I was the general counsel of the Panama Canal and worked on the Panama Canal Treaty. Uh, so I had a sort of foreign thing was was that. Um, but no, I didn't get to be governor of any foreign territory. <laughs> that is definitely true. So, so interesting. I ran home that night and I told my wife she was first lady of an island. She was <laughs> Did she love it? No, we never got to go to Wake Island. Oh, too bad. Um, anyway, not so much. go ahead. There's not much there. Migratory birds. Well, that's that's of interest to me anyway. Um, so let's talk about DHS. Um, when you were there, DHS during the Trump era, and DHS now, um, and, and the kind of cases uh, that are happening, but also with particular, and you sort of mentioned this, the tools that are available to DHS. One of the biggest issues that I've seen discussed now is that we aren't prepared to fight domestic terrorism for all the reasons you stated, but also because we have set up laws that allow us to do certain things in terms of investigation that we can do for foreign terrorists that we can't for domestic. So I'd love your views on whether you think that's a necessary change. In general, I am cautious when it comes to providing law enforcement with additional legal authorities 
to pursue criminal investigations. I think we have to be careful there, mm -hmm. especially when you're talking about domestic crime. Um, we don't want to end up in a situation where people or groups are targeted by the FBI through some extraordinary legal authority uh, because of what they believe or what they advocate or because of the size of their marches. My own grandfather, Joe, had an FBI file. Mm. He was a sociologist in the 1940s and 1950s. My own grandfather testified before the House on American Activities Committee. And first question <laughs> was, are you now or have you ever been a member of the Communist Party? No, I'm not now, I've never been a member of the Communist Party. He was a sociologist, who wrote a lot about civil rights. But the FBI in the 40s and 50s believed that if you advocated, if you were a black man and you advocated civil rights and civil liberties, you were somehow a danger to our national security. And I tend to believe that we have the legal authorities we need to pursue terrorist organizations, violent extremist organizations. It's a question of resources and focus. And I heard, I was listening to testimony from the FBI director not long ago, and I heard him kind of say the same thing. Do now, you think there, there may be places here or there where, you know, Congress has a role to, to, um, tell the Department of Homeland Security, you shall focus on this, or you shall focus on that, or appropriate more money for, for this, that, or the other thing. But I think we need to be careful in expanding upon the government's legal ability mm -hmm. to investigate what someone perceives to be suspicious behavior. You mentioned resources, though. Um, do you feel like there is a need for additional resources at DHS, particularly aimed at domestic extremism? Not many people know this, but one of the things DHS does every year for purposes of Homeland Security is grant making. DHS gives out hundreds of millions of dollars to local law enforcement, state local law enforcement for purposes of Homeland Security, surveillance equipment, um, armored vehicles, things of that nature. I'd go to a big city and the police commissioner would say, see that see that, that SUV of mine over there? You paid for that. Or see this big flat screen monitor mm -hmm. in, our, in our operation center? You paid for that too. And I, I suspect that there is always a greater need for resources at the local and state level based upon evolving threats. You know, you, so you've been at not only DHS, but also the Department of Justice, the FBI, um, also the Department of Defense. And I was an assistant U.S. attorney as a kid. I was where I was a young lawyer, 30, 32, 33, hired in 1988 by Rudy Giuliani. <laughs> I worked in the Southern District of New York, and I worked alongside Jim Comey, Louis Free, wow. um, Fran Townsend and a host of other people. Well, wow. it, that wasn't the purpose of, I know what Victor's question is going to be, but are there any stories you'd like to share about? Rudy Giuliani. Yeah. Uh, no, he, he hired me and then he left 
a month after I started to go run for mayor the first oh. time, mm. unsuccessful. So, and I worked with him at the Department of Justice in organized crime. So, oh my, Victor had a serious question. <laughs> well, I, I guess, like, how, how do you, how does GHS work with, um, the Department of Justice, the FBI, the defense, and in terms of reducing domestic extremism? Uh, well, when it comes to domestic extremism, uh, the relationship with the FBI is daily, hourly. Every morning when I got my intelligence briefing, there was always an FBI representative at the table who would share with me what the FBI is working on, the investigations they have, and that was important for me and my entire leadership team to hear because we very often be working in concert. DHS might be focused on uh, travel patterns um, who might be migrating to the US and the FBI is focused more on the interior and very often there's overlap between those. Um, in my experience, the effectiveness of these types of working relationships depend very often on the personalities involved. Um, if you have an underlying professional friendship with the leader of the agency, then that environment trickles down mm -hmm. to the leadership teams and they work together pretty effectively. Um, the relationship between the intelligence community and DHS is also critical. You asked about DOD, you asked about DOJ, but you cannot underestimate the importance of an effective working relationship with the every every all the agencies in the intelligence community alphabet soup, of which DHS is a part. The intelligence and analysis directorate of DHS is part of the intelligence community, and. I was not a big fan of the creation of D the DNI structure mm -hmm. in 2002. I thought it was another layer of unnecessary bureaucracy, but I think it now works I mean, under Jim Clapper. I know it worked very effectively because you'd marshal all these different intelligence agencies to give us intelligence products and you'd have a report, you might have a dissent, um, but all of that can very easily collapse into chaos unless the grown-ups at the top agree to work together effectively. And I'm sure that's true with Avril Haynes, who's now the, the DNI, the Director of National Intelligence. Avril's terrific. She's a real rock star. So, you know, we've spent a lot of time focusing on domestic extremism. Just for our audience, tell us a little bit about some of the other big challenges that DHS should address. Cybersecurity. Um, DHS, FEMA, has a role in global warming, climate change also. Um, um, human trafficking, Homeland Security investigations, human trafficking, the um, um, drug smuggling on the high seas. Um, my Coast Guard, my, my son is a member of the United States Coast Guard. Part of his mission is drug interdiction. Mm -hmm. Um, the Secret Service, of course, protects our national leaders, but my focus when I was secretary, and now this is over four years ago, was principally counterterrorism and cybersecurity, but there's also underlying threats that also never go away, like, you know, the threat of 
a major weather event, a natural disaster, um, and a host of other things. I, the last question I want to ask has to do with what Congress can do about domestic extremism. And it was suggested very early on that there be a 9-11 style commission rather than just having uh, Congress look at passing new laws or the Department of Justice pursuing criminal cases. Um, that seems to have faltered now over a couple of issues. One is how many Democrats and how many Republicans will be appointed to it and whether its sole focus would be on the insurrection or the Republicans pushing to say, no, then we should look at Antifa um, and all the things that they do as well. Do you think that there should be and can be an effective way for Congress to get involved through a 9-11 style commission? Well, be careful getting Congress involved in anything because you might get what you wish for. But I do believe that there should be a congressionally empowered commission to study the events of January 6th and the events leading up to it. I think it matters less whether the commission members have a D or an R next to their name. I think it's more important that they be Americans of experience, wisdom, and goodwill. Um, I don't believe you need a commission to study all the different threats to homeland security. That's what we have law enforcement for. But because the events of January 6th and the resources we had in place to prevent it are so many different moving parts, I think there's some real lessons to be learned there about how to prevent something like that from happening in the future and what the security perimeter of the US Capitol should be. There've been a bunch of hearings, it's sort of, sort of a, in a patchwork fashion already. I think it would be good to have one commission that studies that and gives us a comprehensive, nonpartisan, yes. bipartisan report. You know, just in my lifetime, and I'm 63 years old, when I was a kid, the Eastern front of the Capitol was public parking. You could park, just a few feet away from the steps up the eastern front of the Capitol. And for the longest time, we avoided making the Capitol look like a fortress, like the White House, the Pentagon, or other federal buildings. It's regarded as a people's building. Then after 9-11, we built the visitor center, but still there was no fence around the US Capitol. I'm afraid that's now probably gonna to have to change. Not only because of the events of January 6th, but the events of January 6th also make the Capitol a high visibility objective for a lot of unhinged people that want to do all sorts of things. We saw that just before Easter. Yeah. Well, and when I said 9-11 style, that the 9-11 commission was an independent, it was appointed by Congress, but it was theoretically, not theoretically, I think it was independent. And, you know, we have other examples. The investigation of the Kennedy assassination was uh, a commission that issued a report. And I'm hoping that we can uh, get off this. I, I agree with you that January 6th is a unique example, a unique threat. And that if you want to have a study of something else, 
it can be done, but just it's not the same as this one. So I'm I'm hoping um, that we can look forward to that. And a lot of the that. members of the Warren Commission, as you know, I'm sure, Jill, were. I mean, LBJ pulled that group together almost overnight and right. dragged a lot of people into it who didn't really want to be on it, like the Chief Justice, for example. Exactly. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I remember when you could take a cab and get out in front of the White House. Now, of course, there's no cars coming to the front of the White House. You have to, you can walk past it, but you cannot drive uh, on that part of Pennsylvania Avenue anymore. So are there any other laws that you think that Congress should be considering in dealing with the threat of domestic terrorism right now? That's a good question. Um, I, I think I'd want to, I think I'd want to carefully consider that. Okay. Yeah. All right. Not so to, <laughs> so to wrap up the, the podcast, so we've yeah, already I've, seen... I've listened when others currently in law enforcement have been asked that question and I haven't really heard a good answer. Mm -hmm. Well, then the good answer is not to answer it until there is a good answer. Right, right. Um, okay, so to wrap up the podcast, so we've already established that you have been a lifelong political junkie starting from when you were my age. And I'm wondering how you made your transition from being a political junkie to serving in the highest levels of government. And then also what advice you would give anyone, you know, any young person about what it means to be, you know, in government, working on behalf sure. of the government. Yeah. Uh, so everybody has a moment when they have their political awakening, or at least most people do, or a point in their life when they become cognizant of the larger world around them. For me, that was the year 1968, when I was 11 years old. A lot happened in 1968, much like a lot happened in the year 2020. And from there, I realized that I had an interest in politics, in national events. I was a terrible student all through high school and beginning in college. And then fall of 1976, when I was a sophomore at Morehouse College, I just on a whim volunteered for Jimmy Carter's presidential campaign, which is based in Atlanta, where Morehouse is. And at the same time, my grades were starting to get better. I was finally hunkering down and studying. So I developed a desire to go to law school because law can be the vehicle for so many good things, so much change. And when I went to law school, I had two objectives. One, to be part of a large law firm, mm. uh, and the other, to be a public servant. And in my career, in the 30, how many years is it now? Uh, 37, 30, how many years is it? It's in 1982, it's almost 40 years uh, since, I've done both. Um, the advice I have for younger people interested in public service is you may have a belief and an ambition to go do a certain thing. Be prepared to seriously consider an opportunity that's a little different from what you anticipated. Two of the four jobs I've had in public service were totally unanticipated. I very much wanted to be an assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York. And I tried twice and I got to be that. In 1998, 10 years later, I was offered the job of general counsel of the Department of the Air Force. I had no idea what that was. I didn't even know that job existed. But the presidential personnel people in the Clinton administration offered it to me. 
and I studied it and I looked into it. And the more I learned, the more I became interested, but it was a totally unanticipated thing. Yeah. From that, when Barack Obama was elected, I had anticipated and was hoping to be asked to be general counsel of the whole Department of Defense. I did that for four years. I left government. I was back at the same firm I'm with now, Paul Weiss in 2013. And just out of nowhere, the president asked me if I would be Secretary of Homeland Security, a job I never for a second thought I would ever occupy. And my first reaction was, am I qualified for this big job managing 230,000 people? And then I thought, well, you know, dummy, if the president thinks you are, maybe you are. So, but that was totally unanticipated. And so the moral of the story is, very often, Victor, you thinking about going to law school? Yes, yeah. Very often, lawyers, we, we lawyers, we think in very conventional terms. I want to be at the Department of Justice, or I want to be in the White House Counsel's Office, or I want to be a Watergate Special Prosecutor. Um, and sometimes there are opportunities to do something equally as interesting that was not on your radar, that you didn't know about. Um, and be prepared to seriously entertain that opportunity. You know, I'd love to have you back to talk about just that subject for a prolonged time, because I think the opportunity to take a risk on something like that is what makes your career and life yeah. exciting. I had the same thing in the transition time for the Carter administration. I was offered a job at the White House, a job at Justice, and the job at the Pentagon. And I was like, the Pentagon? I wouldn't recognize a general if I saw one. I can't possibly be qualified for that, and I wouldn't know what to do. But you read the transition report, and I went, wow, there's some very interesting you know, issues involved in this. That sounds like a real challenge. And decided to take the risk, and it was one of the best jobs I've ever had. So I, I think that kind of career advice might be an, an interesting yeah. subject for another podcast. It, it definitely is. And I think, you know, there for so many young people that I talk to now, maybe it was after, maybe it's because of the 08 recession or maybe because of the um, pandemic, but it seems there's so many people who have like five-year plans set out for themselves. And not saying that's a bad thing, but it, like you said, it kind of limits the uncertainty or the, or those like unplanned moments of your life. And I think that advice is a really good one for my generation. And I'm wondering if there's anything more for you because you've been in government for so much of your career. Um, you know, if Biden asked you to, to be um, DHS secretary or if he asked you to be in his cabinet, um, would, would that be a possibility for you in the near future? There is no possibility that I will be DHS secretary again. Okay. <laughs> been there, done that. It's a very, very <laughs> difficult job. I don't want to do it again. I was very proud and honored to be asked to do it one time. That's it. Um, you never say never. Um, it is publicly known that uh, I, I was seriously considered to be President Biden's Secretary of Defense. Um, I was not selected. Sometimes things happen at the right time for the right reasons. Sometimes they don't. And I'm very happy in private life right now to have my own life. I don't have an entourage of people with guns following me around. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I'm, I'm very happy being a private citizen. And this is the right time, I think, for me to be a private citizen right now. So sometimes the stars don't quite align and sometimes they do. Well, in the meantime, we will make sure to keep an ear out for your future radio appearances. Um, and um, Please you know, do. We, yes, and you know, we just want to thank you for coming on. This was, this was a delight and this was wonderful. My pleasure. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. 